<laughs> so saith the wise Alondo. Welcome back to Mages Murder Dads, the best show dedicated to the games beyond Baldur's Gate. This is episode 63, part of the uh, long-standing 20-year, not, not quite 20 years, but almost 20-year Baldur's Gate 3 Interregnum. Mm. Or just Baldur's Gate Interregnum, I guess. I'm Danny. I'm Cameron. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny, why have we convened here today? Well, I, how many times do you think we've just lost footage after after recording? Or, or audio? Audio yeah. and or footage? Yeah. Uh, in, in the 63 episodes, I would say three times, maybe? Yeah, that's about where I was thinking. I, I can't, yeah. I don't think it ha it's happened too many times, but that happened to us, uh, strangely mm -hmm. enough. Well, actually, not strange at all, given that we've been off the wagon for a while. Now we're mm -hmm. on the wagon. Mm-hmm. So something that you know you get you, you get what uh, is coming to you, I suppose. Did you think it was coming to us? I, 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 <laughs> what, what did we do to, to deserve it? <laughs> what if you're just karmically, you know, owed a couple of experiences, you know, per per year and per when cycle? You don't, yeah, and when you don't um, record mages and murder dads for a year, it's just like, you know, you're at the you're at the craps table. You're, mm -hmm. Or maybe you're at roulette. Blacks come up fifty times, and you're just due. You're just due the red. Well, if you're out there uh, listening to the show, getting toward the end of it, in your first listen, you've been cursing us the whole time. Mm -hmm. Perhaps doing some sort of uh, majory or warlockery. Um, mm -hmm. Quit it, yeah, please. Because here we are, we're recording it. So, uh, but but yeah, the reason we uh, did this, we recorded it one time already, and we beefed it, and so now we're back. Mm -hmm. The true episode 63, um, there is new footage as part of like, you know, this kind of big summer of games that's happening where E3 was canceled. So we're just getting all kinds of weird game information all the time. Larian Studios, the developers of Baldur's Gate 3, who we talked about a bit during the last time we recorded something when kind of the, um, the, op the original cinematic, the opening cinematic of the game, and then some uh, gameplay footage came out in February or March, I think. Uh, back then, you know, we recorded a video, just some impressions, some thoughts, and this is more gameplay footage, more information is out finally, and so we're going to give you some more impressions and thoughts about that. It's what, an hour of gameplay footage? It is one, I actually did some something I didn't do last time we recorded, and I think this will be the, the truly a much better experience because of it. I actually kind of took some notes, and this is a, just under an hour and a half of actual mm -hmm. gameplay footage that happened. And that's gameplay the whole time, not including like the big long pauses they took in the middle. Um, uh, yeah, so that's what makes it a little bit less. It's probably an hour and 15. Um, but yeah, so we see a lot of cool stuff in, in Baldur's Gate 3. Um, and you've watched it again, I think, or at least skimmed through it again. I have. I've, I've looked at it a little bit. There was an interview that was done with what? GameSpot? GameSpot. I think, where I, I forget the Larian president's name. I want to get it right. Sven. Sven something, though. Uh, Sven Vinka. We don't have Vinka, to bring Vinka? surnames into this, but okay. Yeah, yeah, Sven. Uh, <laughs> you have to say his full uh, first and last name, otherwise his true it doesn't name. count. His true name. Uh, but yeah, so uh, he's the one who's doing the gameplay footage. You're going to see that in the background of what's going on right now. Uh, I've watched this interview with GameSpot as well, uh, and I know you've looked at some other kinds of things. So 
Um, what's up with it? Tell, tell me, Danny. Mm. What are your impressions of what we've seen so far? So I think it's kind of... Uh, if you've seen the last episode of Majors and Murdered Ads, you know that we've gotten a brief little uh, look, kind of like the beginning of Baldur's Gate 3, and a couple of things were introduced. Basically, we, we saw a little bit of dialogue, we saw a little bit of character interaction, we saw a little bit of combat. There have been some revisions in this more than an hour gameplay that we've seen and a lot of elaboration so uh mm-hmm. this this kind of i'll give you like an arc and then we'll zoom we'll zoom in and out of like what this gameplay experience was and kind of and we can talk about it okay so the game kind of begins with like appears to be like a camp screen like the kind of screen that you look at whenever you want to take a long rest and like interact with your party members before before uh, going to sleep. Um, We then have like our first battle of the gameplay footage, which is a nine minute goblin battle. And then we kind of do a little bit of exploration, a little bit of uh, skill challenge-y social type stuff. We have another long rest with a Faustian offer, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm. Then uh, in the back half of the video, there's just a lot more showcasing exploration and verticality. Um, there's another interaction with like a goblin named Novice Crusher that has probably some of the most robust like actual options for interacting with people. And then the game kind of ends with a second big battle with uh, spiders and edder caps, and then finally we we just like make it into the underdark, like by the skin of our teeth, because this was actually being broadcast on the D and D Twitch stream, and they were literally going to get kicked off at a certain time. So he yeah, he like, he kept being like, "We have to hurry here because I've, I just have to hurry because we are going to be kicked off of the stream," and he would be like, "In seven minutes, seven minutes, in seven minutes, we're going to be kicked off." Which there was a part of me that was like, "This is pretty wild," because. There's no way whatever is coming after this is is like has a higher profile than the third installment of the Baldur's Gate series. I, I don't know what was coming after, but I'm just I'm going with my gut here. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they did reveal the existence of a real world Superman who can <laughs> run faster than a speeding train and jump higher than a tall building. So mm-hmm. I mean, that, I guess that was pretty important in retrospect. But yeah, Baldur's Gate three. I mean, come on. What mm-hmm. else is going on? Yeah. What, I, just to back up a second, how mm-hmm. how influential and big is Baldur's Gate as a franchise compared to Half-Life? Give me like a sense of scale here. Compared to Half-Life, uh, it, it is, I would say, uh, I, the, the first person shooter genre. Mm-hmm. And actually, I wouldn't say Half-Life. I'd say Half-Life 2 to give us a, a better, I think, equivalence, right? Mm-hmm. Of like big, you know, tentpole landmarks in the history of, of given things. The CRPG, right? Computer RPG genre mm-hmm. um, is big, um, but not as big as the first-person shooter. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that is obvious. I don't think it's a controversial thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um but given the size of their relative fields, I think that Baldur's Gate 2 in particular is roughly equivalent as far as uh, uh, roughly equivalent to Half-Life 2 as far as influence, as far as being kind of name checked as an important part of the history of a given genre, as far as demarcating and delimiting what that genre looks like and is like. 
Uh, I mean, if you look at the all of the throwback RPGs that have happened via Kickstarter, right? The Baldur's Gate 2 is, is in the mix for all of those. I think Baldur's Gate 2 is even in the mix of um, uh, Torment Tides of Numenera, which mm-hmm. is ostensibly a uh, you know Planescape Torment throwback game. Um, so I, I, I would say the genre itself is not as big as, right? And that's partially because Half-Life 2 and and the first-person shooters that kind of come out of that or in conversation with that just eclipse the CRPG in the early 2000s. That just happened. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, one kind of ate the other, ate the market value or ate the attention hours uh, of the other. But I, I think that as far as, like, you know, if we imagine uh, certain games being pillars of genre, mm-hmm. some sort of eternal pillars, if you would, mm. um, then uh, then then they're equivalent. They're equivalent size and equivalent importance for their respective uh, acropolises uh, beneath which the the philosopher game designers uh, trundle to and fro. The difference being that you're just not going to see uh, top posts of Reddit. Uh, talking about when are we getting Baldur's Gate three like you do? When are we getting Half Life three? I mean, I think you even did. though the times, even though the time scales are not dissimilar, no, they're they're roughly the same. <laughs> I I uh, well, there's also the thing too of like Baldur's Gate two came out and then the expansion pack came out and then we got like a million years of of nothing happening. And in fact, the developers of those games went on to do all kinds of different stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Valve still exists, and Valve is literally in your face all the time mm-hmm. uh, because of Steam. And so I think there's a little bit of a difference there, too. Um, there's nothing, you know, you get Steam, and it's hard to not own, at least for a few years. It was hard to have Steam and not in some way own the orange box. <laughs> it's right? true. Like, it's true. You, it just appeared in your, in your uh, you know, Steam inventory somehow. Um, <laughs> as opposed to, it's not like you're, you know, you're going and buying a PC and it's got Baldur's Gate 2 installed on it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, heck yeah. So I think so, there's a little bit of a, there's a political economy difference there. But anyway, you know it if you're listening to this show. Baldur's Gate's a big deal. Yeah. You're a part of something important by listening to this. Okay. Because you're listening to something that is important. So, um, do you want to start with the introduction of this camp screen? Yeah, let's talk about camping. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what, so, so this is something that doesn't exist in other Baldur's Gate games. It does not. It is... What's the best we we get? There are definitely kind of plot beat areas mm-hmm. in certain Baldur's Gate games where it's just kind of assumed that the party wakes up there and you'll be like in a little camp area. I, Siege of Dragonspear had like kind of some circled wagons that you would begin some chapters at. Yeah, it kind of treated each. Uh, I don't. Yeah, was it chapters individually? I can't remember exactly or how that screens. was split up. Yeah, yeah. Each like area basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was you moving with this kind of wagon train, um, or military train, military deployment? I guess. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kind of point to point, and so that kind of felt that way, right? You had characters that showed up, and kind of you you got uh, more information about them. But you know, that was very plotted very much designed and not on the fly which the camping in this appears to be if you are in a, in a position or a condition in which you can camp you can go to the camping screen and do all the stuff there 
Which is um, interesting because at this phase, even if you are in a cave system, and, and I'm sure that they, they'll probably <laughs> solve like this issue by maybe making a couple versions of the camping screen. But if you're in a cave system and you like camp, in the current iteration, you are you like zap to a pocket plane that is outdoors, and you do the camping screen there. Yeah, and, and actually, that that I'm glad you said pocket plane. That actually feels like kind of the the core of this. It feels like how you could treat the pocket plane in Throne of Ball. Yes, um, you know, because it didn't really have a. I guess it did have additional characters sometimes, but it more had like plot beats you could do in there, right, with all those different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that you returned to over and over again. It developed, had new stuff to do in it regularly. And uh, it was kind of a core part of the game. And it seems like that's a big part for this is that, you know, you go to the camp, you can talk to all of your individual party members. Um, You know, there's three party members in this. There's a wizard. There's the main character who's a wizard. There's an additional wizard. There is a fighter and a cleric. Cleric. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so, yeah, so you can like gauge what they're up to right the plot of Baldur's gate 3 at least what we've gotten so far is that everyone who is in your party or uh including yourself has a mind flayer tadpole that mm-hmm. is living in your brain and it's going to eventually mature and turn you into a mind flayer destroying you you know r.i.p your whole damn thing yeah and uh so so all the conversations we see here in this campsite um at least with the party members are about that right like so so it's almost like you know, you can talk to them. It's very similar to the Mass Effect ship. Like I know, was actually the- just thinking, I've never played Mass Effect, but I know that there are, there's kind of this genre of games where you can retreat to the ship, and that's kind of the, it's your nexus of sorts. It is your, 100%. kind of like, between missions, you go there and you kind of do some stuff. Um, yep. I know from both, there's a few mentions of it in this video, but there are mm-hmm. also uh, more extensive elaboration of of what I'm about to talk about in, in a couple of interviews. There is there is a difference between party members, which will be featured in this area, and also followers that you don't mm-hmm. interact with on the regular in the you know the normal adventuring screen. But when if you pick up followers, I guess they are basically non-combatant party members that could, mm-hmm. you know, you're following you around, maybe giving you some kind of bonus, some some kind of uh, extra abilities, or I have to imagine there's going to be some blacksmith of some sort, some weapon crafter. Yeah, that's that's what they've talked about a couple times. Even though I don't think we've seen it yet, is that yeah, you're going to get like a shopkeeper that follows you around and and that kind of thing, which seems convenient. Um, and that's a little bit different than how. It worked in, say, Mass Effect. In Mass Effect, what could happen is, right, you're on a planet, you do a mission or whatever. You come back to the ship to go do the next mission on a different planet. Depending on your choices that you made on those planets, you might have new people that are on the ship, and you can talk to them and get more information from them, and they might have some additional choices you can help walk them through. But really, it was just kind of like, here's some additional story and additional world building. Um, It rarely, as far I mean, it's been since Mass Effect 3 came out since I played any of these games. So if I'm wrong, you know, let let me know in the comments. But it it never, it always just seemed like more flavor and more story and rarely had a mechanical effect. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. I think there is the implication that there's going to be a pretty, um, or maybe not substantial, but there will be mechanical effects of, you know, having additional camp followers. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, and also, I want to be able to slide this somewhere in here. So all mm -hmm. of our party members, there appears to be kind of like two types of characters you can make in Baldur's Gate 3. You can play a pre-selected, uh, kind of pre-made character with like a built-in deeper plot, right? Mm -hmm. So in the last two videos, we've been playing this kind of vampire spawn character who... It appears that their vampirism somehow been interrupted or cured via this uh, Mind Flayer tadpole. Mm -hmm. um, but the rest of the party members are that we've seen in these videos are also characters that are similar to that vampire spawn. You could have selected them at the beginning, Shadowheart the Cleric, for example. Mm. Then I, I didn't realize to... that. I didn't realize they were like <clears throat> the the protagonist you didn't choose. Exactly. Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Um. And ostensibly, you can also choose a custom character. So you can make your own custom character that will probably have similar problems, but you just won't have... There'll probably be some things you just don't have access to quite. Oh, in terms uh, of well, to be clear, too, though, the, this vampire spawn character is a custom character. Oh, really? Yeah. It, it's not one of the... It is not one of the pre-selected background characters. Oh, okay. It there is, you go. Gotcha. It is a custom character. But here's the difference, and I think it's a good thing you're pointing this out. And this is something that I was unclear about, and then watching that GameSpot interview really mm -hmm. uh, made clear. So uh, the president of Larian is talking about those things, and basically he didn't outright say this, but my impression is, because the question from the, the interviewer was, well, if I don't choose a pre-selected background or, you know, a pre-gen character, then am I going to miss out on stuff? I mean, that was the, the kind of question. And he, he didn't say no, because obviously you're going to miss out on some stuff, but, but he did say he went through all the different things you'll select, and this game is based on 5th edition D&D. It has an implementation of a lot of things from 5th edition, and one of the things from 5th edition that it has apparently is the background mm. system of like, you know, there's a finite, finite number of backgrounds you can choose from. So, you know, in 5th edition, there's like the hermit. Uh, Soldier. Soldier, the, you know. Um, folk hero. Folk hero, a pickpocket or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I forget the thing, but like, you know, someone from the streets, that kind of thing. Um, and so my assumption, right, kind of taking those two pieces of information is that even if you create a custom character, the act of choosing a background is going to give you access to some dialogue options that'll help you kind of build out that narrative. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the way he answered the question too, is that you're not missing out on like a mode of engagement with the game. You just might be missing out on specific content in the game. That makes um, sense. Yeah, that's that seems fine to me too. One other thing uh, revealed in that interview, I believe, is talking about basically the distinction between uh, major party members that will have like a quest associated with them and just mercenaries, just people that can join your party, but it, the game is just upfront about this character is going to join your party and they can do combat, but they are not going to have like a fully fleshed storyline associated with them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of the, um, I, I forget, oh, oh, no, I mean, you know, there are, uh, in Skyrim, right, there's kind of two different types of NPCs like that, mm -hmm. or, of, or followers, of ones that have, very involved kind of quest line to them and some who are you know it's just people you hire at a tavern so mm -hmm. uh, i think that seems cool to me too i like the idea of like i have two characters i'm really invested in i want to make sure i hear all the marks and i've just got like you know some character that i've picked up who's just kind of a role player and i don't really have to think too hard about like what they're up to there's um, only there's definitely kind of a bandwidth for how much drama i can take in a 
in a in a party and although Mm -hmm. i do think that it's kind of interesting some of like the predicaments you can get to into in a six-player Baldur's Gate party where like mm-hmm. half your party like some of your you got a, like a chaotic evil member of your party and you got you know such and such and Jahira right? is not having it yeah Jahira hates it mm-hmm. uh, I, I do think it's kind of nice to be like okay well I I want it like you said I want maybe two or three people that have like important plot stuff and then I just want to have somebody I can just fill in and not have to worry about they constantly worry about their desires or them talking about we need to go to the wagon and find out what those ogres did exactly right like it like to, to some extent it's just like and this is why uh when i've played about you know obviously not for mages and murder dads but when i've played Baldur's gate one and two before um you can you can do some trickery in those games where you start a multiplayer game mm-hmm. and then you create all your characters in the multiplayer game and then you generate your save and then you take your save game and just move it over to the single player thing yes and you can put all your characters <laughs> uh you can have created all your characters for Baldur's Gate 2 and when I played that previously sometimes especially you know as a as a teen uh I would like create four characters and then have like two plot characters and then myself mm-hmm. and just some fill-ins who are who were role players uh, because also you might want to have people in your party who just there are no plot central characters who fill in that role. Yeah. Um, or you just don't like the plot central character who mm-hmm. um, who fills in that role. But 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 yeah, I um, I guess other things party member wise too. Or I, I well let's say let's uh, finish up with the campsite. I guess. Yeah. What about the uh, the the Faustian bargain? Yeah, so this is in the second kind of camp screen involvement. The first is just, oh, you can go around and you can like talk to your party members, and some of them will give you a little bit of guff, and some of them will just like be interested in what you think about what you know. This seems like a very easy way to if you've ever if you ever get lost in terms of what you should oh, be doing yeah. main plot wise, visiting the camp screen and just talking to people will like give you an idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it appears, at least if I am to, you know, I don't know how scripted this uh, this particular play session was in terms of, oh, well, we've got to have this. I-, I have to imagine they were like, well, we've got to have this cutscene in there. But it appears that there's a certain point where you get to so many long rests or you long rest after a certain geographic uh, flag or waypoint where a uh, a figure approaches you at your rest site this figure is uh heavily featured in kind of the official trailer of the game now oh um yes this entire speech like the 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 you know the the culmination of the speech that this faustian devil character gives you is the voiceover for the official trailer now oh Mm -hmm. i didn't i did not uh i haven't i guess i haven't watched the official trailer yeah Uh, i think you linked it to me but i didn't i didn't watch it yeah, so there, now there is the intro cinematic, which is a trailer, and mm-hmm. there is kind of more of a gameplay uh, footage trailer. But oh. in any case, this figure zaps you to a uh, kind of a house of, of delights or temptation and basically says, hey, I can, I can solve that Mind Flayer tadpole problem. And in the gameplay footage or in the gameplay expo, uh, you know, event... Mm-hmm the uh the director basically refuses and the uh the devil figure tells you well go give it a shot try try all all you can (laughs) go all these places and see what you can do you're gonna come back to me so it seems like a a major uh 
plot beat of this game is interacting with this. I don't know whether it is a tiefling, a actual devil. Looks like a devil and not a demon. I don't know where 5e is on that distinction now, but at least in the classical D&D sense, this looks like a devil and not a demon. Or maybe even a uh, cambion, I think, might be a term. A cambion's a devil. Mm -hmm. type of devil. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, um, uh, uh, gosh, Descent into Avernus, right, which came out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, heavily features Baldur's Gate. The first third of that that campaign book, spoilies, but the first third of that campaign book takes place in Baldur's Gate, and then it kind of go or not third, first, fifth or so, I guess. Uh, it takes place in Baldur's Gate. It's got almost like a Baldur's Gate um, campaign setting guide inside of the book. I mean, it has a lot of stuff dedicated to that, and then it goes down into Avernus and into the, you know, kind of the first plane of of uh, of the Nine Hells. And it does all this kind of stuff, but uh, but yeah, this is absolutely like contemporary D anD D, classic D anD D. Devils are smart, tricky. They want to make deals, all that kind of stuff. Demons are chaotic, cacophonic. They yeah. want to wreck shit and and uh, never ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, not even later. So so yeah, this is you know, it's a classic literal deal with the devil scenario. Um, and uh, so I was watching this on on you know on on my big old TV. In my living room, I care about like two things in life, and one of them is having a substantially sized television. Um, welcome to America in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so the I'm other watching. is having adequate storage for your books. Oh, I love it. I love <laughs> adequate storage. Uh, but uh, so I'm, you know, I've got I've got it on the screen. I got got my sound up. I'm watching. I'm lounging. I'm leaning back on the couch, checking out Sven. He's doing it right. He's full size. His head's full <laughs> size on the screen, <laughs> bigger than my own my own noggin. And uh, this devil is talking, and he's saying the corniest shit on earth, right? He's <laughs> got a British accent. He's blah, 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 blah. Every like, line, I think his first line is, oh, well, I suppose there is rest for the wicked after all. Yeah, there's that. He says, and this is, this is the, this was like the real, because you're right. I mean, it's just, it begins, <laughs> you know, in this mode. And then, but yeah, he gets to, he says at some point, um, he says, uh, "Isn't it better to know to make a deal with the devil you know than the devil you don't?" And then he like turns around, and instead of being like this dude in you know aristocratic finery, he turns around. He's a devil. He's got horns. He's got wings. All this kind of shit, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and my wife, who was sitting beside me, literally, who was not paying attention, she's like you know barely listening or whatever, and she's like looking at something on her phone, she's reading a book or something. She begins laughing, like out loud laughing. And she was like, it's just, it's, uh, I think I wrote down the exact uh, word, uh, cheesy. Mm. She said, this is so, she's like, it's just so cheesy. And, and I agree. Like, it is, uh, it, yeah, it's cheesy. Like, I, I don't think the average run-of-the-mill cheese would be sufficient to rouse your, your wife's attention in this way. Because otherwise, no. she would be constantly distracted by the media you consume. <laughs> Her life would be miserable. <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yes. I mean, it is... I think on one hand, you could say this, this speech that's being given, right, is uh hanging a lampshade on it right Mm -hmm. this is a stereotypical ass looking devil doing stereotypical devil stuff oh yeah 
you know, you're in for the genre. I think that's one response. I think the other is like, well, that's just what devils are, and you got to be familiar with it, blah, blah, blah. And like, you got to deal with the cheesiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't particularly, I, mean, I didn't care for it. I, I found it, and this is something I said in the, in the pre recorded thing, and I thought maybe I shouldn't say this again, but I am going to say it because it's true. It's a real emotion I felt. I felt secondhand embarrassment. Mm-hmm. I felt while watching it, like I'm subjecting someone else who I like in my life, right? Mm-hmm. I'm subjecting something that I find unbearably corny. Um, and I'm, I, it, it is hurting me emotionally to, to have to do that, mm-hmm. to like see this thing that I do enjoy, which is Baldur's Gate, right? I felt the exact same way about it as I do like playing Metal Gear Solid Five, and then like having to explain to my wife everything to have to do with quiet. Mm. Which where, however you land on that, I think there's a bunch of different places you can go with it. I think there are a lot of different interpretations of that. Just trying to talk your way through it and trying to explain what is being said on screen and shown on screen to someone with no context, very difficult. Right? Yeah, I think uh, the example that comes to mind is a game reviewed by Shut Up and Sit Down and Matt Lees just talks about, yeah, it's really hard to review this game because when you open it, the first thing you see is like a big like a statue, like a big model that's like, you know, six inches tall of just like a sexy giant, like a, a really male gazy, like, like miniature. He's like, mm, <laughs> he has footage of just putting the lid back on and, and sliding uh, it away. But yeah, you know, and, and obviously the two things that were, two examples we just had are different than Very. Like a cheesy but devil, But I think right? that the, the issue is that we've, we've, we've gone into such a, thoroughly well-trod uh territory with mm-hmm. this trope that it is uh it kind of just it, it it actually kind of puts you out of your Baldur's Gate uh you know nerdery and like your own like uh your own membership in that fandom and like oh yeah I know about Minsk and there's a lot of weird stuff with just Baldur's Gate in, in general but it's like it's so generic that it actually makes you critically examine the thing that you're <laughs> that you're engaging in a little yeah. bit more maybe uh yeah that's a great way of putting it just it is it is this kind of um uh uh like brechtian you know like reflective moment where i was like oh my god the system of fantasy that i'm involved in is just embarrassing up and down um but uh but yeah so but but i will say um you know that's not the only time in this gameplay trailer that or or great gameplay whatever stream experience i felt that 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 i think there's something going on in Baldur's gate three um then I don't know if I'm on board for, and it has to do with how this game is leaning into the fantasy tropes that it is playing with and it's, that it's in conversation with. Yes, and I think that this is actually, I think this is a pretty good time to like segue into maybe talking about the other interactions that we have with the NPCs in this gameplay footage. Mm-hmm. Um, you talking about which, goblins. Talking about goblins, that's going to be, we talk to one, two, uh, three, four separate goblins. We have four separate, like, dialogues with with, with goblins, and we have one uh, dialogue with a Zverf Neblin. Good old and, Deep Gnome. Yeah, deep I, I really thought you were going to try to go into a sort of Mambo number five <laughs> um, performance of the number of goblins that you talk to and all of their names. And, well, and... Th- I, there's Novice Crusher. <laughs> There's kid with helmet. 
there's a throwaway goblin that we just like make run away and then mm-hmm. there's like the most problematic goblin of all like the, mm-hmm. that a goblin that i erased from my memory from the mm-hmm. first time that i saw this video and then you had to send the screenshot to truly like drive home no this goblin existed before yeah we fought the goblin existed and i don't i don't know what to do with the goblin uh <laughs> like uh, you know uncategorical goblin mm-hmm. um uh but uh but well yeah so um just goblin facts why don't we lay out some goblin facts i think the last time we recorded this lost to time we kind of like tried to talk through these different encounters but let's just let's get systematic about let's it. let's get systematic about how okay where are goblins from goblins are from england goblins are from england just, in fact everyone is from england i guess so um i actually meant to really listen uh closely to like the dialogue with the Sferf Neblin just to see yes. if there was something else going on there. But I gotta be honest, I don't I think that it's just all British accents here, right? Yeah. Everyone's got a, a British accent and um that but they all have different you know classes i mean it's classes. It's regional dialects that are associated especially internationally with classes, right? Mm-hmm. So um uh, uh, gosh, what's the what's the uh, 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 lock, stock, and two smoking barrels guy, guy Ritchie? Yes, <laughs> like goblins are from a Guy Ritchie film. Yes, right. They they have like a uh, like English factory worker lower class accent. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm a goblin. They all are there. They have the same voices that orcs from Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Yes. And they're like scrappy, scrappy little dudes. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that this links with what we were talking about with the Faustian devil. Uh, mm-hmm. Faustian devil, also British, but like Shakespearean actor British. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like belabored speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, very. Um, uh, what's the what's the word for when you like enunciate all of your? It's it's hyper enunciated, but yeah, it's hyper enunciated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think that one thing that we can talk about with these things together before we get into, I think, a specific uh, maybe criticism or read of like how these goblins are working and what what that's doing for the tone is that this voice acting is quite deliberate mm-hmm. and it is quite melodramatic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I I mean you know uh, I think it also has to do with tone, right? Like yeah. across the 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 devil and across these goblins, what, what we are getting something that is a very it's very clear what you're dealing with, right? Like like there is not at least in the goblins that we've seen so far, there's no difference in way of speaking from goblin to goblin. They constitute a class. There are goblins in the world and they mm-hmm. talk in a certain way and they look a certain way and they interact with you basically in the same way there's not really a lot of uh, you know in the hour we only have an hour footage but in the hour footage they all kind of interact with you in the same way um they have the similar sets of fears and concerns and kind of power politics and all those kinds of things and uh the the way that they are talking to you um, it puts puts us in a very particular like genre space, I guess is the, the best way of putting it, right? Like, I, you know what you're Rings in for. Was what kept coming up uh, the last time we kind of spoke about this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the you know they they're not super smart, they're easily intimidated, uh, but uh, I, I think you know, 
it's a, I guess I have two different things, right? On, on one hand, very easily frameworked, very easily understood. This is the stereotype of a goblin in D&D, straight mm-hmm. up, up and down. And we are getting, in a world where we're not just reading text, but we are getting fully acted voice dialogue, we are, there is nothing about the way they speak that would disrupt or interrupt the way you already think about goblins in D&D. Like, mm-hmm. it is designed to make you think uh, scrappy, lower class, kind of getting beat up by other people because that's kind of what goblins are all about in D&D. And yet, uh, you got to respect them because they will, you know, murder your whole party mm-hmm. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the first, you know, the beginning of the game. Yes. Um, so th- th- there is that, but also, you know, they are... A faction. I mean, they can be uh, talked to in, in full and robust ways. You can build reputation with one. He kind of explicitly says that one of the goblins, uh, novice crusher you were talking about, that you can have like a longitudinal relationship with that guy. Yes. So I think that what we're seeing, and there's kind of a tension here in that not just novice crusher, uh, but also kind of just every every inflection point where we interact with goblins there is a there is a break to dialogue mode mm-hmm. where there is always a promise or always an opportunity to avoid outright violence mm-hmm. right and i appreciate that because one of my very first experiences with goblins in dungeons and dragons was probably the Sunless Citadel, I think, was the module in the back of like the third edition player's manual. And there's mm-hmm. just a there's a uh, there's a encampment or a community of goblins in this particular dungeon. You can kind of wheel and deal with them because they have material interests in the world, and you can kind of uh, leverage uh, your your services or, or things you can do for them and get things in return. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that approach rather than them being simply uh, you know sentient speed bumps between you and whatever Baldur's Gate thing you're doing. But the the way this game leans into that Lord of the Ring thing, it, it feels there's feels like there's a little bit of conflict here between kind of some of the most um, interesting aspects of the way Dungeons and Dragons can play goblins versus some of the most I don't, I don't want to say least interesting, but some of the most like well-trod um, ideas about the, the way to treat people like goblins, entities like goblins. Yeah, I mean, it just runs, it, you know, this is not a surprise. We talked about this on the show before. Uh, this is a conversation constantly around D&D and has been for 20 years, uh, more than 20 years, but but certainly a robust conversation has been happening for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, that that you know there there's a thing of like these are people they are part of an ecology of the world they exist they have thoughts and feelings and and we have to interact with them on that capacity and the other that there is a racial difference between you and your protagonist character and them and they have their own culture and social group and all that kind of stuff um and so for example that leads into a scenario in which the goblins just don't seem that bright yeah right there is a, there is an immediate difference between goblins and your party of elves, humans, whatever, vampire spawn. Um, and uh, that gets instantiated in a whole bunch of different ways. It gets instantiated in the way that they talk. It gets instantiated in the way that you have to talk to them to get them to understand a problem that you care about. And it gets instantiated in the way that they dress, right? So they are wearing, for the most part, 
um, they are wearing what what appears to be scavenged gear, right? Because that's mm-hmm. a way that goblins get treated in D anD D is that they're kind of a, a group that's uh, they're they're gonna kind of get whatever they can get and, and it make is, the best. It of is it. literally they're marginalized literally in terms of this is in this is a social group that exists at the margins of where the game operates, right? Y- yeah. So, so it is at the margins of like you know the player you know the player character type communities of oh like a half orc town or, or a human settlement or Baldur's gate even right so like at the margins they're generally not allowed you know in in polite society or even like communities but also at the margins of like if there are power brokers like oh a, a bugbear warlord or a dragon like they will exist in kind of like the margins of that sphere of influence so that's shown in like the stuff that they wear but mm-hmm. as you pointed out, there's also like one that is just like straight up wearing like clothes that kind of like are attempting to evoke something like a like something about like a specific goblin culture that is cribbing heavily from like indigeneity, I think, from in like real life. Yeah, I mean, there's something going on there. There is an aesthetic alignment in the clothes here that that's doing some weird stuff. So for I mean, you can see it. It's in the first encounter. I'll have it here. Um, but, you know, he's wearing kind of a leather tunic. It's got like a like a ball skull looking thing, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. around the waist of the tunic. Um, and then some like bones in the armor and then all of these like big blue feathers and like this almost like headdress thing um on the back of a helmet um and right so it's got this vibe of like scavenged you know scavenged materials scavenged items and things like that and then this kind of flourish of goblin culture um however there are real world cultures that used uh, and that continue to use decorative feathers um as part of their uh you know uh cultural uh, uh, garments um, and so when you begin taking that kind of mechanical marginalization, the purpose of the goblin in D&D or the treatment of the goblin in D&D, and then you staple onto that real world aesthetic identifiers of marginalized people, you start ending up in, in obvi- and obviously this kind of like um, tight knit social group mechanism that goblins have. Goblins are a community of goblins. Um, then you start ending up with this kind of like, you know, layered on system of things that start being very uncomfortable and weird. Yes. And I think that it's like, well, A, we're, we're talking about this for two reasons. One is uh, when, you, when you've got an hour to just pour over and then you have mm-hmm. like an hour to talk about it, you end up talking about some things that maybe you wouldn't if there was just more content and we, we had other stuff to talk about. And another thing which I think is like kind of important something that eluded me before now is there is a really different way you interact with a video game when the first one is an isometric rpg where the entities you're interacting with are like a fraction of an inch on your screen Mm -hmm. you know and and you can kind of like mostly you're told you're like informed of characters by like the broad strokes of this person's wearing armor or not and like maybe some colors and generally you're just inferring things from their environment so like for goblins and Baldur's gate you're, you're generally the best you can do to like infer these kind of things for them from them is like oh well there was an encampment and i can like look at maybe mm. the tents and such because that that's rendered with a bit more graphical fidelity you're really opening a space of like where conversations can occur when you have this full 4k you know experience this rendering of a goblin that's fully voice acted there's more going on yeah and and i also think too i mean the 
the you get this kind of graphical fidelity. You get this kind of ability to move the camera around that you're pointing out, right? Where detail can be pulled from different places. But then there's also an additional burden on the part of the game developer in the year 2020 to like make this character who talks look more unique, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like it's a reality of game design. And so the, the, the way, I guess, let me, let me back, back up a little bit. There's a desire to make things look unique in the game in a general sense. And what is happening, and something that I think is really interesting here, especially around tone, we were just talking about with the devil, we're talking about with the goblins, right? What you get with the devil is what you see. Like, it's exactly what you would expect. No surprises there. Mm -hmm. What you get with the goblins is what you would expect from fantasy media, from D&D, whatever. There's no surprises there. Um, and so I, I think the idea is when you are working within something that is such a well-defined genre, such a well-defined space that due to it, probably D&D licensure, and I have no knowledge about this, but probably due to D&D licensure and with the responsibility of, of building a game that is at least centered on 5th edition D&D, it's not like you can be like, hey, the monster manual, you know, get out of here. I'm not, I'm ignoring the way you, you think about goblins, right? You have to work in that framework when you, when you sign on to make Baldur's Gate three, mm -hmm. but within this very familiar space, I understand a game designer and a game developer who would try to, uh, spike out of that in interesting ways, right? How do you make things look unique? How, how do you, uh, change the tone of that? Um, but that in this case, it's just relying on more things that are very standard, very uh, familiar, but from a different cultural register. Yeah. Um, and so that's all to say, what's been really weird about the whole hour of gameplay footage is looking at all the mechanical stuff we talked about in the last episode. Um, you know, the, the fact that you can do so many different things in this world and you have so many buttons of like just shit you can do. But that's within a framework that I think feels extremely well-trod, like you were saying before. It feels extremely um, simple, basically, and, and, to, and not simple as in the level of complexity, but simple as in the sense of like, yeah, this is like what D&D's been doing for 40 years. Um, that, that's what you get. That's, that's what I've seen before a thousand times and read in all the books and played in D&D. Um, and it's really kind of unfortunate personally to go from the thoughts we were having last time that we just saw the gameplay reveal stuff where it's like, Oh shit, mind flares and spell jammer. Maybe mm -hmm. yeah. Give Yankee all that kind of stuff to like, it's stereotypical goblins doing stereotypical goblin shit who now have a register and a wide range of things you can talk to them about, but still have all of the mechanical and design and fictional uh, limits that have always been put on goblins. Yeah, and time is going to, t you know, time will be the test here because I do know that at the end of this footage, the last, like, fraction of a second, uh, Sven's able to drag us over the finish line and get us into a Myconid settlement in the mm -hmm, Underdark. Yeah. And we yeah. see a flash of, like, a mushroom person, like a really gnarly fungi guy. So it is, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of space to, like, maybe maybe push the boundaries of of uh of aesthetics and what characters can look like but you know we got to deal with what we have seen here and what we've seen so far is is stuff that's pretty bog standard type fantasy um and yeah. i think that when you look at really successful and memorable uh kind of depictions of worlds 
The Witcher has like a take on fantasy that's kind of informed by Polish folklore, if I understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oblivion, or uh, and rather um, Morrowind, has like a very interesting take on like these kind of fantasy stuff. This kind mm-hmm. of fantasy stuff. I think that. Um, I do hope that the game seizes the opportunity to like lean into some of the weirder stuff that happens in Baldur's Gate and some of the stranger stuff that's in the Monster Manual, etc. Yeah, because you know Baldur's Gate One, Baldur's Gate One is kind of like standard fantasy fare, but Baldur's Gate Two, like goes right. I mean, you, weird. You, it's weird. You wake up in in the uh, <laughs> the the underground lair beneath one of the biggest cities in the world, a hidden underground lair in which an immortal soulless wizard with a vampire sister has been experimenting on creatures for like who knows how long um, and has like a, a, a caged cambion in there and, uh, you know, an Otyug, which, which all good dungeons The wizard cops are actively raiding the compound. Yes, and the Thieves Guild is having a big fight at the same time too, right? And like obviously, you know, you got to build up to that. You got to do that stuff in the sense that Baldur's Gate 1 builds up to that. But um, and this is a one level one to ten experience. What we're going to be getting with uh, yeah. Baldur's Gate three. Yeah, and uh, the, what we see in this is level three. These are level mm-hmm. three characters who are doing this content, so they have a lot of spells and things like that. But that's all to say, right? Like I have, I have always associated um, Baldur's Gate with pushing the limits or or really experimenting at the edges of what D and D is doing, in the sense that you know I play Baldur's Gate, you know, play them as a teenager. And then I was reading D&D manuals at the same time. And D&D manuals, I always, you know, was reading and thinking, oh, the coolest stuff that's in here is all the stuff that's in, you know, the Baldur's Gate games. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going and hanging out with Lord Furcrag. And, he, oh, he's a dragon. Oh, shit. Like, it really was a greatest hits of it is. what D&D could be. It is. And uh, I think that's you know, the question we're kind of thinking about right now is based on this depiction is Baldur's Gate 3 going to still try to do that? Is it going to try to take, like, campaign books and the, and the Dungeon Master's Guide and be like, what is the coolest 10% of this? And let's do that. Exactly. That's a, that's a, a great way of putting it. And, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know if these goblins are, like, the greatest 10% of any yeah. part of, uh, of a D&D manual. Um, I don't even know if they're, like, you know, uh, I think the most charitable interpretation here is, right, is exactly what you're talking about, Sunless Citadel, hugely important uh you know it gets i think tales from the yawning portal ported it to fifth edition mm-hmm. big famous um uh, D adventure and so like yeah having like a faction of goblins you can hang out with and kind of make deals with is a big part of that and it's a big part of D history i don't know if i 100 percent think that that if that's the shot that's being made here i don't know if that shot sinks you know yeah i think a, another generous interpretation would be okay you're level three we're giving you a baseline of mm-hmm. like this is regular adventure so that when we when we get a little bit wild later you'll be comparing it to this yeah and maybe that's that, mm. that that's perfectly fair too right we only got an hour i think that the the ceiling for Baldur's Gate 3 is very high yeah um in, as to what could be in it but i you know i i would be i i mean i'd be lying if i if i didn't say you know what we saw in the hour uh, is mechanically very interesting, but I think from a narrative perspective, which is where I'm approaching these games first and foremost, right? I really like the story and and working my way through the story of these games. I just think it's a little disappointing. I think tonally, uh, it's relying on 
fancy tropes that just aren't exciting to me. Speaking of mechanics, we've really flipped the script because the first time we attempted to record this, I think we we went right into combat. We went right mm-hmm. into the nitty gritty, and we've actually we, we've saved it for last year. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot to kind of digest here. Uh, it's it's intense, is it not? There's a there's a whole lot there, there's a lot going on in the UI, and I <laughs> yeah. wonder. You know, I, what's interesting, I think, is if you've ever played any D&D that's between, like, 4th and 10th level, right? We do Sword Coast Coast to Coast, which is a D&D 5th edition actual play podcast. You can go to range. the most recent episode I saw was, like, you're right at level 10. You got level 10. Yeah. And so, basically, for the back, um, I don't know. Basically, you know, the last two recording sessions that we had, we were level 10, right? So, we really did play from, like, a level, I think we played from level 2 all the way to level 10. So it's, you know, a good kind of thing. But at, at the, basically like levels three to seven or somewhere like that, you can, in your head, having access to one character, you can probably think of all the things you can do, even as a wizard. Like you can conceptualize all the things you have access to. But the higher level you get, the more things you can be doing as far as like the number of spells you have, the way you can deploy those spells, all that kind of stuff. Plus, you got to think about all the things you can just do as a, a person, right? So... Um, you know, uh, jump actions, running, dashing, climbing, tackling, grappling, trying to think of another ing word. Yeah. Um, but right, like just, just the, the full plenitude of in the theater of the mind, what one can do in the world. Um, you know, if you exist as a half-orc barbarian, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's hard to kind of keep in your head, everything that you could possibly do in a D&D situation. And what we see at the UI of this or in the UI of this video game is someone attempting to uh, not just make sure that you're aware of those, but to give you an icon for all of the possible things that you could do. Uh, and so it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to look at. I think it's a lot. And we are thrust kind of the very first goblin battle. We are kind of thrust in a situation where we don't win it, win an initiative and two goblins act before we act. And, the, and like, so you lose this uh, role to, to attempt to uh, avoid combat, to attempt to intimidate this goblin leader. And we go into combat. The camera zooms out. We are on the ground. There are buildings to the right and left of us, and there are goblins on top of those buildings and in those buildings. And the first thing that happens is, like, we get fireballed and then shot with an arrow. And, like, at the from the get, that we've got two characters that are at half health. Um I think just having rewatched that and seeing Sven navigate, like climb this ladder to get on top and like, oh, he's like, okay, I got an action surge um, in order to get an extra action so that I can dash and then still attack. Um, And then, oh, I did that, but the goblin still lived. It just, it really makes me think about the difference between the way combat and the engine works in Baldur's Gate 2 where, okay, I can go into a fight and then give it my best shot. And within 15 seconds, you know, I know, oh, this, this isn't going good. I'm going to, I'm going to have to reload. Mm-hmm. Like knowing how, like how, how is reloading going to work in Dragon Age Origins? I'm pretty sure you can't like do these fine tuned saves in the middle of combat and reload during the middle of it. I don't know how this is going to work in this game, but it just made me think of like, 
man, if there are some combats where if you just lose and, like, roll poorly on your initiative and, like, three enemies go before you do, before you're unclumped and they've, like, fireballed you, I'm going to have to reload. But the difference is, like, the amount of time invested before I have to do that. It, it feels a lot like, like XCOM 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the benefit is XCOM 2 will auto save every t- between every turn, and maybe that is a system that should be implemented here. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like if if one turn goes bad enough, you can have a cascade failure that that annihilates your whole forty minute combat. That's something. I mean, Larian, you know, developed uh, uh, Divinity 2, and uh, or Divinity Original Sin 2. And this is like a well-known thing about that game, right? Combat takes a long time. It's very difficult, and uh, you can have a couple bad turns that that annihilate twenty minutes of progress. Um, you know, it's it's something I don't know. Obviously, what's being gained here is the full set of actions that a human being could do, or that a person could do, um, or just in, that in, you could do in your pen and paper campaign more or less outside of the you know the dm fiat stuff which to be honest a lot of like dungeon masters run it so hue so close to the book that they they are basically just doing at their table all of the math that larian is providing them now yeah um and and so you know in if you're playing pure if you're playing dnd fifth edition purely theater of the mind and someone says all right i want to spend my whole move and climb up there um then that the that sentence that i just said is the end of that Right. Mm-hmm. It took 10 seconds. Right. Um, it takes five times that long for someone to select the thing, uh, select where exactly they want to go, compare that to other places they could go and then make that climb. And so each individual action, while giving someone a huge amount of player freedom in that is replicating the kind of freedom of action that you have at the tabletop is actually becoming a, a huge time constraint. Um, every mo- weirdly enough, right in the game, every moment of increased freedom is a decrease in time freedom <laughs> of, yeah. of capability to spend time however you want to be doing it. Um, w- which is, you know, if there's a benefit to the other Bald- previous Baldur's Gate games, right? The benefit to those would be uh, you you can't jump, you can't go vertically, mm-hmm. you can't really make very many tactical decisions outside of a two D plane. You can really only have access to combat abilities in combat. So, for example, in the middle of combat, I can't be like, parlay, and then like yeah. have a whole different deal going on, which you could do in a tabletop game. Um, but most of those encounters, even the longest ones, are over in two or three minutes. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're, you know if you're going to win or you're going to lose within a fair few number of turns. And it seems like every battle in this game is basically going to require the same amount of mental load, the same amount of time as like a lich fight in Baldur's Gate 2. A lich fight and XCOM is really an apt comparison, but the difference is you're playing XCOM 2 now. What are the things that a character, what are your options in XCOM 2? Like, What are the things you can do? They get more and more complicated uh, as you go up in levels, obviously. And mm-hmm. they uh, the big jump between XCOM and XCOM 2 is there's a lot more contextual stuff that deals mm-hmm. with specific characters. So, for example, the most recent time that I streamed the game, I learned that if I take a, I believe they're called a specialist class, which is kind of mm-hmm. the healer class, the support, what used to be a support class, they have a thing called a gremlin, which is a flying drone. They can, if you equip a med kit to them, use their flying drone to go and heal someone that they're not directly beside. So, so like that is a series of like, uh, of cascading decisions of, uh, when I start the mission, I need to put the, the healing item on the specialist. 
I need the specialist to spec into the capability of using the healing drone. Mm. I need to then place all my characters within healing drone range of everyone. Um, but I don't want to keep them too close because there are, there are different explosions and weapons and grenades and things like that that could blow them up. And uh, also, I need to make sure that they stay within that distance while we're being stealth during that part of the mission so they don't you know run away or whatever. So there's, there's a series of... of uh, dependent decisions that get made that, to be clear, I'm not complaining about. It's it's a tactics game. That's what it's all about. But I don't know if I think that the pause-and-play combat of uh, Baldur's Gate at this point, you know, I may have thought differently in the past, but I don't actually know if it's all that tactical. Um, mm-hmm. It really has much more to do with feel, to be honest with you. Like, yeah. I, I think I can do this. I think I can get through this. Um, and I think that it's interesting that even though you you did your best to give us, like, a pretty accurate rendering of, like, those kind of options and consideration with that XCOM 2 character, just from the small amount of footage I've seen from Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate is immeasurably more complicated. Yes. Baldur's Gate is immeasurably more complicated. The action economy includes all the 5th edition things of movement, minor action, standard action. Mm-hmm. There are... Uh, obviously character specific traits like the githyanki has like a racial ability where you get to jump super far you can pair this with spells like featherfall every spell you have which we were scrolling and the wizard has looks like a dozen you can choose which spell slot to expend just like in dungeons and dragons you're like oh Mm -hmm. i can do my my thunder weave but if all i'm trying to do here is just knock this guy you know over the ledge i don't need to expend my third level slot i can just do a second level slot it's it's a tremendous amount of options and i think that the worry is that's fine if it's just a sandbox and most fights are pretty straightforward but in but like definitionally the more tools you give there's going to be a tendency to okay well on the hard fights you're going to have to use all of the tools right yeah. on the hard fights you're going to really have to uh, engage with this system and, and and truly have you know your your hands on all the knobs as it were and, and and make sure you're you're kind of doing these things optimally because that's the difference between an easy fight and a hard fight an easy fight is something where there's a margin of error an easy fight is one where you can play it suboptimally and you can there are multiple solutions hard the harder a fight is the the narrower and more constricted you are in terms of navigating that path, and that path is going to go a lot more places. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I don't envy... This is something that that came uh, that came up when we interviewed Phil Daigle, right? Yes. Like all those, like, a couple years ago at this point. You can go back and listen to that episode. I don't remember what episode it was, but I can put it in the description below. Uh, Phil Daigle worked for Beamdog, um, uh, no longer, is no longer there. Um, but we, so we said, you know, kind of, kind of joking, but kind of not joking, you know, is Beamdog working on Baldur's Gate 3? And this is way before I think Larian even began this game. This is before, uh, Divinity 2 was out. Maybe they were working on it. I don't know. We didn't talk about it. Um, but so, so we said, Hey, you know, uh, Baldur's Gate 3, what's the story there? And he was like, well, think about it this way. What, what would Baldur's Gate 3 have to have in it? Right? Like who, what would it do? Who would it be for? Where do you go from here? Right? These kind of big conceptual questions that are like, yeah, obviously those are big questions, but I, I think they're serious to consider. And I think we are seeing in the footage that we've seen so far, kind an, of answer. A, a, an answer that's kind of, I think a little bit frictional, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if it's the, I think there's no right answer. And I think that might be a problem because uh, on one hand, 
Baldur's Gate 3 is going to have to please or satisfy the people like us, or the people also the people like me, who are really interested in the story. I want to see more ball spawn stuff, or I want to see how this is involved. Some of the promo copy has talked about the Dead 3, so we might see some cool stuff around that. Uh, it's going to have to uh, please people like you, right, who played the first two Baldur's Gate games in a pretty weird way, and I think you want to continue to play that, you know, solo character, that kind of thing, and we don't yeah. know if that might work. Um, it's going to have to, to please the people who have been playing these games constantly for 20 years, um, who are, and that's a substantial part of the, the community who have been experimenting and doing weird stuff in these games already, uh, and who are looking forward to like some really difficult crunch, uh, you know, in crunch in the, in the sense of like game systems. Um, mm-hmm. And it's going to have to uh, appeal to people who have never played any of these games before and have no history of it and are going to be intimidated by that that number three, right? They're going to be worried that they need to have caught up and it's going to have to ease those people into this universe and into the game and into this kind of Forgotten Realms setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a lot of difficult... It's um, a big ask. It's a big ask. It's a big, big... You know, that's a lot of different questions to answer uh, mm-hmm. with one product, which is a game. And... Um, you know, I think the kind of hyper complexity and difficulty uh, that you're talking about, I think that that's going to be either a pain point for a lot of people or it's going to be something that people celebrate. Um, and I've actually seen Divinity Original Sin 2 talked about in that kind of way. I've seen a lot of people talk about how much they love the beginning of that game. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen anyone talk about the, the end of the game, period. Like just in casual yeah. kind of Twitter conversation, things like that. I don't think because I've ever seen the sheer seen amount of hours necessary. Yeah, of of you know kind of crunchy combat of the similar mm-hmm. type. So um, I think that Baldur's Gate three, you know, it's got a lot of people to please in different kinds of ways, and I'm I'm curious about. You know, as a game designer, you're looking at all those intersecting lines of desire, right? And you're trying to figure out, well, where's the place that they intersect that I can, like, design around? And Where's the and place they intersect? Variable. And where where is my easy... What can I cut? <laughs> right? Where is the easiest place to cut? Exactly. Um, and it's just going to be... It'll, it'll be, We'll get our answer. It's looking like from the recent trailers I've been seeing, so that that uh that trailer that features the Faustian offer voiceover, mm-hmm. uh, had August twenty twenty, and then below it slowly appeared maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think yeah, I, that that seems to be what uh, what Larian is saying, right? Augustish, Septemberish, we will get. Um, in the GameSpot interview, he actually said pretty explicitly, right? He said, basically, we'll get chapter one. Yeah. Um, there's going to be five or six playable classes, something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, it'll be in early access, right? So they'll be adding content for the next year or two. I mean, I don't think they've ever said what the final um, release date might be. But... You know, our plan for Mages and Murder Dads, we, we have no interest in like playing through a game that is incomplete or, or a game where chapter one might get re- radically reconfigured, right? So sure. probably what we're going to do, just to give people an idea of going forward, is that, uh, you know, when this game comes out in full release, Mages and Murder Dads will, will come back in, in full regard. Our plan is whenever this opens into early access, we will just play whatever's there and we're not going to do like a full, you know... Um, uh, Mages and Murder Rides episode, but we'll do another kind of impressions episode after playing, you know, a few hours of the game, and we'll, 
you know, let people know what we think or whatever, but we are not going to be like covering the game as each little piece comes out. We're just going to wait for the whole thing to come out and then we can do, you know, a proper Baldur's Gate 3 season on it. Yeah, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of time spent putting, you know, making this content. I definitely want it to count. I want it to be the, I want it to be Larian's kind of vision of the finished product that we navigate through. But I agree, you know, we'll react to, you know, whenever the next gameplay uh, is released. Um, and we'll kind of make a call as to whether, uh, you know, whether we'll make an episode on that or wait for early access. But I, I, I do look forward. I'll definitely play early access and I want to, like, talk about kind of first impressions but not get into the nitty-gritty of things like narrative. I think that the the insights you get with, uh, with early access and, and that we'll hopefully get are just, you know, kind of general mechanical observations. And I, I'm sure that there'll be plenty more that, uh, to digest, uh, that, that could be the fodder for an episode or two. Yeah, I think so. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I'm excited about the game. I, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to have the impression that like, I'm somehow like deeply critical of Baldur's Gate 3 sight unseen other than like two hours of gameplay footage. But, but you know, uh, I am, uh, cautiously optimistic that it will be an interesting, cool follow through of, of what we like or what I like about these games. Um, I've just been disappointed in a, in a general sense that what we have seen so far just seems to be kind of bog standard D&D stuff. And I, I want to see Baldur's Gate 3 doing more than that. Um, yeah. But but I think it will. Like I, I think there, like I said, I think there's a very high possible ceiling. And I the more I see that is less you know player's handbook 101 stuff and and the more that i see uh is weirdo stuff um Mm -hmm. i think the better no i agree i think uh and um, so just stay tuned um stay tuned for the next uh mages and murder dads Mm -hmm. well i so i got one question for you Mm -hmm. i got one question for you here at the end yeah do you think our genie count's gonna go up i'd be disappointed if the genie count remained uh, at the level it is, I, I think that I think that G, I think that there's a lot that can be done with genies. Same. I hope that the, I hope that they push the genie envelope. Actually, <laughs> just every it's revealed that everyone is a genie, or the whole game has taken place in a an illusion that is created by a genie. That's possible, but also just I, I'm interested with all of this very fa- these very fancy graphics, like the Gith Yankee uh, fighter. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of uh, segments in this gameplay footage where you're just kind of close up of the Githyanki fighter face as uh, as she kind of interacts with these goblins, just like really detailed. Looks really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am interested to see a depiction of a genie in this kind of like let's 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 stretch our imaginations on what what that kind of thing could look like. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you don't want them just in like a generic Middle Eastern hat. No, I don't. I don't like. Yeah. I don't want that at all. Yeah. And I, I think that if that happened, I, I would spend a couple of minutes on an episode talking about why I didn't. Why I think that that's quite lazy. Um, the uh, so second final question. Mm-hmm. What do you think our chances of seeing Elminster are? Oh, I, I would definitely. I'm having to answer this question without knowing where Elminster is canonically in terms of like where was he when the forgotten realms novels got discontinued right mm-hmm. did they like space hulk him did they <laughs> did they have to like get rid of him because he was too powerful no i think like... he was just kicking around i think uh i think he still exists after the spell plague i believe 
Well, we know one of the two authors of the Baldur's Gate 2 manual are here because Volo is featured in this gameplay footage. <laughs> it's true. He's just straight up there, and he's so bad at rhyming. He's just atrociously poor. Yeah. And that being said, rhyming under duress. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, he's never been one for for uh, uh ribaldry and and bartery i mean he's mm-hmm. mostly a, a dude who drinks and eats food mm-hmm. and then writes down rumors he's a bomb uh, vivant mix he's basically like a food network correspondent yeah 100 percent uh and like not a good one <laughs> not, <laughs> not a talented one but yeah. uh but yeah you know i this, that's what these are the kind of questions that they're kind of like rumbling around in my head about Baldur's Gate three because on one hand like what i want in my heart is for Elminster to like walk up to you on the street and be like, "Hey, I noticed, uh, noticed you got that tadpole in your head. It's pretty weird, huh? What do you think about that?" And then you have like 19 options you can choose, and and you know you just choose one. And he's like, "Oh yeah, that's interesting. Good good day." And then he like you know <laughs> goes away, and you never have to hear about him again, right? Just like he did in the other games. I don't um, know. It, like, look, I think my ideal would be you get to the point where if you have not solved the tadpole crisis, right, mm-hmm. and you've used the tadpole too many times to see in your brain, what happens is a spell jammer shit materializes and, like, wrecks into, like, a, a, a nearby building, and Elminster just, like, repels down and like, kind of a pirate outfit, and he's got, like, some... Uh, some Gitzerai like uh, first mate there who's mm-hmm. like doffing his hat and Elminster just says get in I, so so here's the thing I would like that too that's also good <laughs> right that's also a good thing what I don't want and and maybe it'll happen right and I think it's actually the most likely one is that mm. we have to go rescue Mel- Elminster from some crisis mm. that's like the exact thing I don't want I do not want to experience in this game the kind of thing where like uh Minsk is like hanging out somewhere somehow and he's alive and we gotta go get oh, him because he's a time traveler. I really or don't want Minsk in this game at all. You know, like I I don't want the interesting Forgotten Realms things to be like uh you know like Princess Peach all around the world mm-hmm. and we have to like go because that's what we're doing for Volo for Volo in this thing, right? Is like Oh a hundred percent. You know, oh look it's the recognizable character. He's in peril. We gotta do something for him. Um I just feel like that's not that's not the kind of relationship I want to have in the world in these games. I yeah. I want it to be weird stuff that happens, but it's weird stuff that happens not because there's a named you know protagonist who's in peril. Uh, I want it just to be weird stuff happening again. Uh, you know, uh, but this but. this looks like a AAA endeavor. This looks like you know just watching these people go around the world. I think that the it's got a real high floor. Is my mm-hmm. estimate. Sure. Floor is real high. I think that like the worst case scenario is still a season's worth of mages and murder dads talking about a bunch of weird stuff, whether it was intentionally weird or not. <laughs> sure. You know, that's, that's another question, but I, I think we're in good hands as far as at least uh, content is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that anyone who is trying to fulfill the, um, you know, as if you're just trying to hit the Baldur's Gate marks and you hit those, I think that's, you're doing a pretty good job. So, you know. I, I still, I think about Siege of Dragon Spear quite often. I think that they really were able to figure out, you know, like, what are the things to make it feel like Baldur's Gate? So I, I'm hoping that Larian can do something similar. Yeah. Well, excellent. I guess until next time. Goodbye. Ciao.